Moving on in Exodus, we're in chapter 3 this week. Um, the title, The Awe-Inspiring God. And the big idea, an encounter with the one true God changes everything. <laughs> I, I often reference uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. You think about awe-inspiring presence. You think of Aslan. If you're familiar with this story, raise your hand. Most of you, okay. Well, let's talk about Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I want to talk about, I'm actually just going to read a quote, when the Pevensey children, at least three of them, this is Peter, Susan, and Lucy, when they first encounter Aslan, the great lion. We see in this scene joy, fear, and awe, all mixed into one. (laughs) How could that be? Well, let's read. This is from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn overwhelming eyes. Then, I love this part, they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. (laughs) They went all trembly. For Moses, an encounter with God's glory would lead to both a relationship with God and a mighty mission for God, because this was truly a life-changing encounter. An encounter with the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ changes everything. is true. And if you're a believer, you can say amen to that. You can say, yes, that is true. Think about the first time you encountered Christ in the gospel. I was 12. I'd gone to church as a kid, Sunday school, uh, but it wasn't until middle school that I heard the gospel clearly, I think, for the first time, and (laughs) I went all trembly. My heart was moved by the Spirit to see my hopeless and helpless situation, my depravity apart from Christ, and by God's grace and by the Spirit, I was moved to see the beauty of Jesus, right? His all-satisfying glory, and I trusted in Him, and I was forever changed. I was forever changed. In our approach to Exodus, again, we're going to cover big sections, chapters at a time, sometimes more. When you study the Old Testament, it's good to have a plan. When you study the Bible, it's good to have a plan. And so I want to encourage you to consider this. We're going to answer, we're going to try to answer these three questions uh, throughout our study. We might not cover all of them. We may add to them. But these three questions are helpful when studying the Bible. Number one, what does this passage teach us about the character of God? God is revealed in His Word from Genesis to Revelation. What does this particular passage teach? teach us about God. Number two, how does this passage point to Jesus? Again, all Scripture bears witness to Christ, and so how does this passage point to Jesus? And number three, how can we apply this passage to our lives? How can we live it out? And again, every week we're not going to answer all those, but we'll try to answer at least one or two of them. So let me provide some context for Exodus 3. What has happened up to this point? Again, it was two weeks ago when we kicked off this series. I covered chapters 1 and 2, Um, we looked at context. Let me just review. So first, God's people, right, the Israelites have multiplied, but so we're beginning to see fulfillment, right? I mean, 
What did God promise Abraham? A great nation, more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And we, we see early on in Exodus that God's people have multiplied. God's covenant people are growing. So God's people, the Israelites, have multiplied, but are suffering. They are suffering in Egypt under the unjust, cruel reign of Pharaoh. Okay? But then Moses appears. Moses, the future rescuer of Israel. Again, it's God who does the rescuing, but he uses Moses. Moses has been born and rescued from death to rescue. And we talked about how God rescues us from death to take part in his rescuing work. We as Christians have been rescued to rescue. Number three, Moses kills an Egyptian and flees east to Midian as a fugitive. He's a man on the run. And I always thought that song by Paul McCartney was man on the run, but I guess it's band on the run. I'm not sure why I shared that. But <laughs> Number four, God hears the cries of his people and he knows that the time of rescue has come. Again, God doesn't forget. We talked about that two weeks ago, right? God remembered, he saw, he heard, he cared. What does it mean that God remembered? All it simply means is the time for him to act is now. The time is now. At the beginning of Exodus 3, we find Moses tending his father's sheep in the wilderness on a mountaintop. Okay, so again, these two locations have great theological significance. Things in Scripture oftentimes happen, significant things happen in the wilderness or on top of a mountain. And I'll try to unpack this here briefly in a moment. But this is cool. Maybe you've never thought of this. Moses' experience, Moses' experience in Exodus 3 foreshadows, it points ahead to the experience of Israel. Okay, so let me show you. Moses was rescued. Israel, too, will be rescued. Moses journeys to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Israel later journeys to Mount Sinai. God appears to Moses in flames of fire on Mount Sinai, and God would later appeal to Israel in flames of fire on Mount Sinai. What's the context of Exodus 3 specifically? This is a worship scene. We're beholding worship. Let me, let me show you how. We have God's presence, one. We have the worshiper, Moses. We have God speaking. And we have Moses do something strange because, again, he's uh, instructed to do it. He's commanded. He removes his sandals out of reverence and fear of God, who is what? How is God revealed in Exodus 3? He is he's holy. He's holy. So let's come back to our first question. What does Exodus 3 teach us about the character of God? Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Who is this? Because at first glance, again, we, we see it's Malach Yahweh, it's angel of God, angel of the Lord. But then God speaks, and so who is this? I'm going to argue that the angel of the Lord is a visible manifestation, a, a visible appearance of the divine presence. This is God, this is a theophany, and I'll define that again here shortly. But let's read the text one more time. Exodus 3, 1-6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So who is this? Who is this speaking to Moses? First off, the word for angel, Malak in Hebrew, can simply mean messenger. It can simply mean messenger. Vern Poitras writes, I love Vern Poitras. I like his name too, Poitras. He's a smart brother, uh, godly man. He memorized all the New Testament, all of Romans in Greek, and he can bench press 600 pounds. That last part I made up, but the other two are true. Again, Moloch can mean messenger, Vern Poitras writes, depending on the context, it can refer to a created angel or to a divine appearance. In other places in the Old Testament, the angel or messenger of the Lord is identified as God. So we have Genesis uh, 16, verse 7, and then also Genesis 22, 11 to 18. And then we have flames of fire. Is fire significant in the scriptures? Don't just think hell, judgment. Two weeks ago, we talked about theophany, okay? And, and that's a big theme in Exodus. God appears visibly, right? And we talked about how God does that to show that I'm here, I'm for you. It was to instill confidence in God's people. Again, a theophany is a visible manifestation of God's presence. But God commonly manifests himself visibly through what? In Scripture, through fire. And we see this both pre-Exodus and post-Exodus. Think about uh, Genesis 15. Think about Acts 2. Now, what is the significance of fire? I want to spend some time talking about this. Is God intentional in what he does? Is he purposeful in what he does? Of course he is. So Vern Poitras wrote a 500-page book on theophany. <laughs> and he talks about this. It's a good book. In the Old Testament, he writes, fire can symbolize, now listen, either purification or destruction. More often than not, it is destructive fire. The two sides are not incompatible since purification comes by removal or destruction of what is impure. Think of 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Lord uses fiery trials to purify his church Again, these fiery trials come from the Lord. They are his will, and they serve a glorious end. All right, I got a long quote from Poitras, so bear with me. This is really good, though. It's the last time we'll hear from Burn. But listen. Fire has ties with the themes of promise, covenant, and kingdom, as well as manifesting the presence of God. Fire fulfills God's promises to bring judgment and consume wickedness. Fire as an expression, here it is, of God's holiness, also shows that God is faithful to his own character. So it underlies God's commitment to his promises. Fire expresses God's covenantal presence as the holy God. In covenant, he draws near to human beings. 
But if those human beings are unholy, the fire of God breaks out as an expression of his holiness in the holiness of his covenantal commitments. Fire also appears in some instances where God is establishing a covenant. The fire in the burning bush is one of the events leading to the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. Fire expresses the fierceness of God's commitment to his covenant. Finally, fire expresses God's kingship. It shows that he acts in power to purify his people and destroy the king's enemies. What do you think Moses did? What was he thinking when he saw this this fire? You think he laughed? You think he danced? Or do you think he was in awe? You think he, he went all trembly? To borrow from Lewis. I think the latter. Again, fire is often used to symbolize God's mighty presence. How does God guide his people during the Exodus? Pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? So let's look at a few examples. Exodus 13:21, <clears throat> pillar of fire. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And then we have his fiery presence on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So when you think fire, think God's holy presence. Again, his fiery, holy presence is meant to evoke what? Awe, wonder. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Even the mountain went all trembly. Not just the people of God. His fiery presence, and again, this is the climax of Exodus, right? There's 40 chapters, and this is after all the instructions for the tabernacle have been given. It's been uh, constructed. And then listen, this is the crescendo. Exodus 40, verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys, reminding God's people that this God who rescues is holy. He's holy. Now, I stated before two weeks ago, I think I mentioned it again earlier this morning, theophany was God's way of declaring to his people, I am with you. I am for you, trust me. So what stands out in Exodus 3? Oh, we can take this for granted. We can just read through these narratives quickly and not catch and grasp the significance of what God is doing. In verses 3 to 5, the Lord sees and the Lord speaks to Moses. Our God speaks, amen? And the Bible is proof of that, proof par excellence. And then we have holy ground. God's presence marks the location as what kind of ground? It is Holy, verse 5. That is significant. And then we have, oh man, we're going to spend a lot of time here, God's self-revelation in verse 6. He doesn't just appear, but he speaks. And he doesn't just speak, he gives his name. That's huge. He reveals his name. That's very personal, right? Hey, what's up? What's your name? And they walk away. Well, it's not very personal. Hey, I'm Richard. I'm Chris. Okay, cool. Now we can have a what? A relationship. Next, Moses fears to look at God in verse 6. Moses responds to God's revelation with fear and reverence. And that is an appropriate response to God, fear and reverence. Now, I want to go a step further. 
I do believe that this is a theophany, what we see. This is God appearing before Moses. What grace. But I want to argue further that it's not just a theophany, but a Christophany. Now what's that? This is a visible appearance of the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus. Bruce Walkie notes, this argument is plausible in that both are distinct from God and yet equated with God. Because again, it's the messenger of the Lord, but then God speaks. And I think of John 1.18. No one has seen God, but God, the one and only who was at the Father's side, who has made him known. So there, John's making a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. A few other things to consider in support of this view, that this is a visible appearance of the pre-incarnate Son of God. The image of fire and light applied to the messenger of the Lord is later applied to Jesus. If you remember Matthew 3.11, what does J.B., John the Baptist, say? I baptize with water, but the one coming after me will baptize with what? With fire. So that fire imagery is applied to Jesus. And again, John 8.12, he is the what? He is the light of the world. Think about the humility. When God comes down to speak to Moses, what does he do? He descends to the dirt with the dirty sheep. When Jesus comes onto the world scene, is he born in a castle? Say it in Spanish. No. He's born in what? A barn, essentially, right? A stable in a feeding trough? What humility. I love Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, we see both the saving initiative and the humility of God that later is seen in Christ when he comes. And of course, the most obvious is what? Jesus takes on the name I am. How does God reveal himself in the burning bush? Hey, so God, when, when I go, I think I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, when I go and, and tell your people, who are you by the way? Like, What name do I give them? I am. And I'll unpack what that means, but how does Jesus refer to himself seven times in John's gospel? John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Right? John 10, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus takes on that name, I am. And I love the scene where Jesus walks on water, comes to the boat. Ego me in Greek, I am. Whoa! <laughs> it is me, but really the way you should translate that is, I am. So what exactly is Jesus saying when he takes on the name, I am? And what does it reveal to us about Exodus 3? Have you ever wondered what Jesus was doing pre-BC? I guess BC, right? Before Christ, before he came. What was he doing? What was Jesus up to? He's always been, Amen. What was he doing? I love this quote from Michael Reeves. He wrote a book called Rejoicing in Christ. He writes, Jesus' own claim for himself was not that he was simply an old divine being or God. His claim, now listen, was that he was quite specifically the Lord of Israel himself come in the flesh. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am, he said in John 8, 58, pinning on himself the divine name, I am, which we render in English as the Lord. Thus, it is not an odd thing at all that he should appear, speak to, and be with his people. For he is the Lord who goes out from the Lord. Genesis 19.24 
He is the Lord Almighty who says, the Lord Almighty has sent me. Zechariah 2, 8 and 9. He is the one in whom the faithful have always trusted. As John Calvin put it, never did God reveal himself outside of Christ. Never did God reveal himself outside of Christ. All right, so again, trying to make the argument that this is in fact a Christophany, which is what? A pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. Three more things. The messenger of the Lord in Exodus 3 speaks the very words of who? He speaks the words of God. In John 14, 24, Jesus says, this is John 14, 24, these words you hear are not my own, they belong to the Father who sent me. Again, Jesus, as the Word, is the ultimate messenger of God. And like the messenger of the Lord, right, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, but I'm saying it's messenger of the Lord, Jesus came down to rescue. Exodus 3, 8, and I have come down to do what? To deliver them. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. So now that we've settled on the angel or messenger of the Lord being God, again, not, not an angel, right? This is the messenger of the Lord. Who is, who is who? Who is he? Who speaks from the bush? This is not a created being, but God. What do we learn about God's character? What then do we learn about God's character? Number one, if you're taking notes, you're not filling the blanks, you can follow along. First, God graciously reveals himself to his people. That's massive. God reveals himself. Again, I, I've talked about the deists, right? The deists believe that God simply kick-started creation, got things going, and then peaced out. Not personal, not involved, not concerned. But that's not the God of the Bible. God graciously reveals himself to his people. Why? To be what? To be known. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Second, God is holy. Verse 5, then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is what? What kind of ground? It's holy ground. Number three, God hears, he sees, he knows the suffering of his people, and he cares. God cares. God is compassionate. I think about Jesus, right? You got right before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus and the disciples are on the go doing ministry, and man, Jesus, let's just get some respite, some rest. And Jesus sees the great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus cares. Number four, God rescues those in need of rescuing, and he uses his people for that work. And so again, God rescues those in need of rescuing, and he uses his rescued people for that work. That's verses 8 and 10. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Next, God is present with his people. He is present with those he sends out to serve him. Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. Is there any greater message than that? Is there any more comforting message than that? Confidence instilling message than that? God calls Moses, he reveals himself to Moses, calls Moses to this massive mission, but then he promises what? His presence. I will be with you. And then what does he tell us in the Great Commission? 
I am with you always. We'll come back to that. Next, God is the eternal creator. This is huge. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is a causative in Hebrew. I cause to be, right? I, I cause to be because I cause to be. You can actually read it that way in Hebrew. And I'll, I'll come back to that as well. Next, God is faithful to keep his promises. Come on now. That's, I mean, this is everything. God's track record is perfect. God makes promises and he fulfills them because he's what? He's faithful. Verse 12, verse 17, he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Verse 17, And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is faithful to keep his promises. And then lastly here, and this is a big theme in Exodus, God rescues his people for worship. He rescues his people for what? For worship, for his glory, right? He is meant to be glorified, and he rescues us so that we might acknowledge him and live for him and declare him. This is verse 12, the NIV. God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. What's in a name? Again, when I lived in Africa, names were very significant. People had the coolest names. I think I've mentioned God Love was one. Ransom, another one. Ransom. The names were very significant. They were, and again, you know, in our culture, I'm not saying again, many of you I know were intentional. You didn't just like put names in a hat and draw out. But I think a lot of people just, I like that name. They don't think about the meaning. But in this culture, in this place, names meant everything, right? They were significant. So what's in a name? Who reveals their name to Moses and to us? God. Verses 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay. William Lesore says that a person's name is based closely with a person's existence, representing and expressing his or her character and personality. Furthermore, for, for God, for God to reveal his name to Moses was an invitation to enter into fellowship with him. For now, he could invoke the holy name of God in prayer. Now he knows the name by which to address God. What grace! Now he can talk to God. Moses could speak to God. Now, th this is good. This is going to be helpful. We have two self-revelations. I think we always park on I am who I am, right? I am. But there's two names revealed. First, I am. Second, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The original Hebrew of I am is from the verb to be, hayah. And it should be read as a causative. It carries the sense of God. God is the creator. And thus it can be rendered, I cause to be. Now, why is that significant? Did Egypt have one God or many? They had multiple gods, right? They were pagans. They had a God for everything. And we'll talk more about that when we get to like chapters uh, 6 to 11, 7 to 11. But to say that this God is the creator, oh, 
basically discounts all the other gods, right? He is the God. He is the creator of all. Everything that is, it's because of him. Amen? That's significant. Doug Stewart writes, the name, right, I am, Hayah, should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh's being the creator and sustainer of all that exists, and thus the Lord of both creation and history. Again, this was no local deity. This was and is the God of the universe. Now, what's the significance of the other self-revelation? Exodus 3, 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So think of the first name, I am, is very general, big picture. I am God. I am the creator of all. I've always been. That's me. And now, right, secondly, he gets more specific. Yes, I'm that God, but I'm also the God who has entered into covenant with Israel. And it recalls all those covenant promises. Okay? So, Exodus 3, 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Telling the Israelites that Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had sent Moses to them would have signaled what? What would it have signaled? This was the God who made a covenant with his people. And what would God do according to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, and let's summarize. He would act on their behalf. He would take them into the promised land. He would punish those who mistreated them. Again, I'll, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. What this signaled, this revelation, hey, tell them I am, but tell them the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <gasps> oh, fulfillment time, right? I mean, it's going to recall all those covenant promises. The time of fulfillment was at hand. Again, this was no national deity. This was no pagan statue. This was and always will be the Creator God, the God who entered into covenant with Israel for salvation, for His glory. Again, this was a declaration of God's imminent action to save. So God reveals Himself to Moses on two levels. As both the Creator of the universe, of all that there is, and as the God who had entered into covenant with Moses' ancestors to rescue and restore. Moses is an interesting cat. He's a man of two cultures. He, he grew up in right, Pharaoh's household. And God speaks to those two cultures, right? For the pagan, when you have different gods over everything, to hear that, no, there's one true God who has always been, and he's the creator of all, what does it do to those other deities? No mas, they're gone. It discounts all of them. But then to say, I'm also the God of your ancestors, <gasps> we know who that is. We remember those promises, and the time to act is now. Number two, how does Exodus 3 point to Jesus? That's our second big question. The light. The light. Images of light and fire are often used to depict God's holy and powerful presence. Exodus 3 points to the future entrance of of the light of the world. John 8, 12, again, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. And then divine intervention. The God who had intervened to rescue the hurting and the suffering would one day come again. But this time, He would take our hurt. He would take our pain. He would take our suffering upon Himself at the cross. Mark 10, 45. 1 Peter 2, 24. Number three, divine presence. As 
as God was with Moses in mission, so too would the Son of God be with his followers in mission. Again, what are Jesus' last words before he ascends to the Father? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. But what is the promise in verse 20? I'm with you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. The great I am. The great I am would come again to save the lost. Jesus is what? He is I am in John's gospel. The character of God. The character of God seen on display in Exodus 3 would be seen through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's John 1.14. What does John 1.14 say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. <gasps> that glory is coming back. It's come again in Jesus. The same glory that appeared in the Exodus to rescue God's people has appeared now in Jesus. And then lastly, the rescuer. Like the messenger of the Lord, Jesus would come down to rescue. Number three, how can we apply Exodus 3 to our lives? A few things here. Number one, learn from Moses' mistakes. <laughs> Guys, Moses is not the hero of this story. David's not the hero of the kingship narratives. Okay? Who's the hero of Scripture? God is. So learn from Moses' mistakes. In verse 11, Moses asks the wrong question. He asks, who am I? Why is that the wrong question? Who am I? The more appropriate question is, who is with Moses? Who is with Moses? We as Christians are called to go and make disciples. Instead of asking, God, who am I for such a task? We should ask, who is the one who is with me? Who is with me? Who is with us? The Lord the Lord. He is the one who has all authority. I love what comes before the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Okay, so the therefore, right, that is the conclusion he draws, the inference from what he just said. We can go confidently because the one who has all authority is with us, amen? So don't ask the question, you know, who am I for such a task to, to share the gospel on my middle school or high school campus or my workplace or my neighborhood, but who is with me? The Lord. Number two, confidently serve the Lord because he is with you. Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. So again, this follows from the first point. We can confidently serve the Lord because he is what? He is with us. Number three, call out to God in your distress and know that he hears, he sees, and he knows, he cares. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. We can call out to God in our suffering because He knows and He cares. Number four, worship the Lord because He is holy and worthy. Worship Him. He is the Creator. We saw that, right? I am, I cause to be, but also He is the faithful God, faithful to His saving promises. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is holy, so worship Him. Next, like Moses, we must revere the Lord. We must Fear the Lord. We must be in awe of the Lord. This is where wisdom begins, right? So be in awe. God graciously reveals Himself to us. He reveals His glory to us so that we might behold Him in awe. So be in awe. Revere the Lord. Like Moses, proclaim the Lord to others. So Moses beholds God's glory, and then he's called to do what? To make Him known to others. 
Who's seen God's glory in the gospel? Who's trusted in Jesus? If that's you, what do we do now? We proclaim him to others, amen? Next, when God calls you to go, you must go. I don't want to. No, when the king says go, what do you do? You go. You know, I'm committed to reform theology, a a reform soteriology. I believe in election. And some might say, well, then why even go? If God's going to save who he's going to save, why even go? Because the king said go. That's why I go. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission, right? And when the king says go make disciples, what do you do as a follower of the king? You go. You go. Lastly here, remember. (laughs) Remember. God is more powerful. God is more powerful. God's people were enslaved, being harshly treated and killed off, and yet the message of Exodus 3 is that God is king. He has no rivals. He alone is the creator, the eternal creator of all. He's faithful to his promises. Remember that. Remember that God is more powerful. He is sovereign. He is in control. What we see in Exodus 3 is that an encounter with God changes everything. In Exodus 3, Moses beholds the glory of God in the pre-incarnate Son of God. He's brought into fellowship with God, and then he is moved to mission for God. Again, a saving encounter with God results in both relationship and mission. So if you have beheld God's glory in Jesus Christ, right, that results in both a relationship with God and a mission for God. And you can have a relationship with God by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turning from your sin. Amen? You can know this God. You can have a relationship with Him. Again, know this. God, according to Exodus 3, according to all Scripture, God is faithful, He's holy, He's merciful, He's powerful, and He's caring. And Jesus would come and demonstrate these characteristics through His perfect life, death, and resurrection. Through faith in Jesus, you can be rescued for a relationship with God and a mission to reach others for Jesus. What we see in the New Testament, I think of 1 John 1, 1-4, those who behold Christ are then moved to proclaim Christ. Think of it this way. I love alliterations. Those who behold Christ are moved to broadcast Christ. What does broadcast mean? It means to spread far and wide, okay? So those who behold the glory of Christ in the gospel are now moved to broadcast that good news, amen? Let me just read 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John and the early disciples, by God's grace, had beheld the glorious Savior and then were moved to broadcast the glorious Savior. Have you beheld the glorious Savior in the Word of God? What's our mission? To now broadcast the glorious Savior in the Word of God. Now, let me take a step back here. When we behold God's glory in His Son, in His Word, this beholding is transformative, and it's ongoing, right? Think of 2 Corinthians 3.18, and and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God and the face of Jesus are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And every time we go to the Word, what do we behold? God's glory. And what does His glory do? It transforms. 
And evidence of that transformation is what? What do those who are transformed do? They, what's that second B word? They broadcast. They declare. Why? Because the king said to, but also, don't you want others to taste and see what you've tasted and seen? Don't you want others to know the beauty of Christ? The matchless beauty of Christ? The unparalleled beauty of Christ? Don't you desire that? Don't you desire for the lost to know what you know and to see what you see? What is the only hope for the world? Beholding the glorious Savior in the Word of God. And where is that found? Where is He found? In the Word, in the Gospel. So don't be ashamed. Tell the good news. If you've beheld the glorious Savior, broadcast the glorious Savior so that others can behold the glorious Savior and be transformed, moved from rebels shaking their fists to God to now worshipers raising their hands to God. Amen? Who's with me? Yeah, let's go. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this glorious Gospel that in Your Word we have the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ revealed. We thank You that, God, You reveal Your glorious Son so that we might be transformed, moved by Your Spirit from rebels to worshipers. Proclaimers. Broadcasters of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for everyone in this room who has beheld Christ, who has seen His unmatched, unparalleled beauty, His wonder, that, Father, we would be in awe, that we'd be transformed, and that as an evidence or fruit of that transformation, that we would go and broadcast, spreading far and wide the good news of Jesus Christ so that others might behold, God, Your glory in the Gospel. We thank You that, God, You reveal Yourself in Your Word as faithful, as merciful, as kind, as good, as caring, as all-powerful. God, You are the Creator. And in Your grace and for Your majesty, You came to Your creation. You left heavenly glory. You took the initiative to save a bunch of rebels like us. And we thank You that if we trust in You and turn from our sin, You promise to forgive us and to bring us into Your eternal family for Your eternal glory. Father, move in this place. If there's any unbeliever here this morning, open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ to see their need for the Savior. Move them to repent and to trust in Jesus. And convict us, Father, for being selfish. I pray that we would take part in your mission, remembering that, God, you promised to go with us. That You give us the boldness. You've given us your word. You give us your church. And so I pray that we'd go out together testifying to your glory and your gospel. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.